In this episode, we're going to give you a real estate user's guide by interpreting a whole bunch of the commonly used terms so that you won't feel like you're trying to understand a foreign language. Welcome to your first home buyer guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mums. But that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 40 years experience and we are going to share with you bucket loads of stories about avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure that you get unbiased and real information that you can rely on so you can get where you want to be without missing a step. Now, we've got loads of great tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll find free checklists that you can download, a free mini course on how to price a property and our where to buy a workshop for only $39. Priceless stuff, really. Bargain. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field of expertise. Now we've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change. So check with the relevant government authority or your advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Let's kick off with some of the people you might come across when you're looking for property, whether it's your first home, whether you're rent vesting, whether it's your upgrade. Um, let's have a look at who's who in the zoo. And of course, first, and you know, from my point of view, most importantly, is the buyer's agents. You know, who who are they? What do they do? What what what, what does that term even mean, Veronica? <laughs> a, a, a buyer's agent, or um, they can also be called a buyer's advocate, um, particularly in Victoria. And, and they're, they're a, a license, usually a licensed real estate agent or, or registered, depending on which state you're in, who act for the buyer instead of the seller. So unfortunately, the term is not regulated yet. So anybody can effectively call themselves a buyer's agent. So be really, really careful. If, if you think that you're, you've got someone who's looking after your interest, it, a true buyer's agent will be paid for, by the buyer for their service and work exclusively for that buyer. They're not paid by anybody else and they are certainly not free. Certainly not free. If they are free, they are selling you something. You are the product. You're the product. (laughs) So they're selling you as a buyer to a developer, for instance, or they also could be working within a sales agency. Often the juniors, the the sales associates are called buyers um, representatives or buyers agents. Buyers managers or all sorts of different terminology there. But really, Veronica, at the heart of it, they're working for the selling agent. Exactly right. working for the seller. Yep. And they're called you know, their job is to look after buyers because they actually see looking after buyers as the um, the low uh, dollar value, believe it or not, in an agency, the low dollar value activities because finding properties and listing properties is the high dollar value activity in a sales office. So be and very that's careful. the agent's job, right? Yeah, the the agent's job is to list and sell the property. So let's, let's go on to that one because the, yeah. the two sort of go hand in hand and that is the real estate agent. So 
the real estate agent in traditional model, um, they they are the person who is engaged by the owner of the property to sell that property. Um, and they have to gather in buyers to hopefully compete and get those buyers to pay the highest amount of money possible. That is their job. It is their legal obligation. Um, and, and most of their time is spent prospecting for new listings. Exactly right. So their job is only to help you insofar that you buy the property that they're selling. That they're selling. Because that's how they make their money. <laughs> now, and, you know, good ones will help you, of course, but they're not oh, yeah. working for you. Mm. Yeah. 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 And that, that's a really, really, really important differential is, is the buyer's agent is paid by the buyer. Their job is to work on the buyer's behalf to find the best property. Selling agent is employed by the seller. Their job is to list property and sell property to any buyer who will pay the most amount of money. That's, and then you got a property spruker. <sighs> Your favourite. <laughs> tell, us, tell us about because <laughs> you love a good spruker. I love a good spruker. So unfortunately, because the property industry, despite the fact we have to have a licence to be a real estate agent and be a buyer's agent, um, it is an unregulated industry. So you've got a lot of people sort of giving advice or they're saying it's advice, but it's actually they're really selling and quite often sprukers are selling either a system or they're selling a, you know, brand new property. There's there's a whole bunch of stuff that sprukers will sell, but they are selling. And it's just that they're not as simple as a sales agent where they're selling a, a property that they have listed. You know, they're usually selling en masse. There's usually rooms full of people, <laughs> pre-COVID Do anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Now, now there's Zoom, Zoom yeah. rooms full <laughs> podcasts and, and uh, look, there's, there's all sorts of speakers out there, but I mean, in, in essence, it's someone who really tries to persuade a buyer, often in a dishonest or exaggerated way. Oh. Um, I remember sitting in a seminar before I went into the real estate industry and 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 this particular, it was absolutely selling off the plan. I was in Victoria at the time, living down there and, and working down there. And and the whole pitch of this was that you could have you could you could own a property for the cost of a cup of coffee every day. Yes, I've heard that one. Have you heard that one? Oh, because yeah, it's pretty times. common. <laughs> yeah. For the price of a cup of coffee a day, you can become a property investor. And it's like, yay. <laughs> oh, my God, not, that's so cheap. I could just stop drinking coffee. <laughs> it's just not job done, though, is it? <laughs> you, you, we're dealing with a lot of people who fell for those lines now yeah, who are now yeah. upgrading their homes or trying to actually buy their first home and can't because they bought one of these properties that actually is worth less now than they paid for 10 years ago. So Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the Spruker's job is to work for whoever is the developer or owner of that property. Um, and it's your job as, as a home buyer or a rent vester to, to dig through the dirt and, and see it for what it really is. Yeah. <laughs> so if it sounds too good to be true, it is too it good to be is. true. <laughs> Someone else that you will come across in your property buying journey, a conveyancer. You may never have heard the term conveyancer. Hmm. Yep. And and you'll need to, this is a really important part of your team, Veronica, in our PACE system in, in the course, um, your first time buyer guide, we talk about building your team and, and the real estate agent isn't part of your team and the property spruker sure isn't part of your team, but a conveyancer is part of your team, um, a conveyancer or a lawyer. Uh, so you, you actually have to have uh, not legally, but, you know, best practice Should would have. be yeah. to have um, a lawyer or conveyancer to review the contract when you're buying a property. Um, a conveyancer is actually different to a lawyer in that they only work on property matters. So they specialise in property matters. 
um, and they're often less expensive than a lawyer. Uh, this doesn't mean they aren't as good, um, but, it, but there are also some cut price conveyances who aren't good. So yes. not all conveyances are created equally. So, so as long as they have that specialised knowledge in, in property um, and they, they know end-to-end what you need as a buyer, then a conveyancer could be a good alternative to to engaging a solicitor. So it depends on where you are and who's good and who's not, but don't go for the cheapest. Hey? When, when you're building a team, don't always go for the cheapest option. No. And conveyancing basically is the, the verb, the act of really basically transferring the property from one owner to another. So that's what they get involved in, the contractual side of things mm. to make sure that that happens and, and the relevant due diligence is done. But it's not enough to just rely on that. You need to do more. No. And, and, and I, we, we uh, interviewed um, Jenny Tonner, uh, mm-hmm. who is a conveyancer, and she said one of the biggest things that people overestimate is how much advice a a conveyancer or a lawyer can actually Mm. give because they haven't physically seen the property. So there's a lot of of reliance on the buyer to actually inform the solicitor. What are the structures that are there? What, What are the concerns? What sort of searches? So you really need to have a really good idea on how to instruct your conveyancer so that they can do a really good job for you. And we have an episode coming up in a couple of months on that one. Lenders Mortgage Insurance or LMI. Yeah, so this is sort of one of these things that when you go to another member of your support crew, uh, which is your mortgage broker. So when talking to a mortgage broker or talking to, um, uh, you know, people about loan structures and and so forth, lenders mortgage insurance is, you. you, it sounds like it's something that's going to protect you if things go wrong, (laughs) but it's actually an insurance policy that covers the bank in the event that you default on your loan. So you pay the privilege of insuring the bank against you. That's a hard one to wrap your head around, isn't it? Get your head around that one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, and there are, you know, most lenders do require you to pay uh, the premium if you are borrowing more than 80%. But it's not yeah. the case all the time. And there's a there's a, a home loan deposit guarantee. There's a few exceptions to the rule, um, but you know, this is about terminology. So lenders, mortgage insurance, LMI, that's what that is. Yep. So if you haven't got your 20%, you can still borrow, but you'll pay for the privilege. And and sometimes there is a cost benefit of actually looking at that. Mm. So we don't blanket say, you know, have a 20% deposit. You've actually got to sit down with a broker, understand your own personal situation. And there are going to be circumstances where lenders mortgage insurance will help you get into the market quicker or to get into a better quality property. And as long as you understand what those costs are and it works for you, then don't don't just straight out say, I'm not going to pay lenders mm. mortgage insurance. Understand it for your situation first. And, and that's where a really good broker will help you work through that. Absolutely. Um, now, the next one, Veronica, is equity. Mm-hmm. Equity, it sounds cool. We love equity. <laughs> equity is the difference between what the property is worth and how much you owe the bank. So it's actually the bit that you actually own. So if you buy a property and you pay a 20% deposit, assuming that it's worth the day after you settle, the same as what you paid for it, then you've got 20% equity. And over time, as properties go up in value, you get equity. And also as you pay down the principal, you gain more equity. So, But it's the difference between what you could sell it for, what you get to keep versus what you have to give the bank back. Yep. And, And equity doesn't always come in the form of growth. 
So we'll talk about capital growth in a minute. So asset selection is so important if you want to keep moving in that positive equity cycle and and building more and more equity and paying down your loan. Absolutely. Uh, Transfer duty or stamp duty, different different terminologies in different states, means the same thing. Yep. It is a state-based tax on property transactions. It's actually on vehicle transactions as well. So there's a number of things that attract stamp duty. But in this case, we're talking about property. The exact amount that you'll pay and any concessions or, or discounts that you might get as a first home buyer, these are really different state by state. And, and we go into this in quite a lot of detail um, and, and have some um, spreadsheets on the differences in different states. And, of course, these sorts of things are um, sometimes adjusted to encourage people to, um, to, to purchase. So particularly for first-time buyers at the moment, there's some really good concessions, but there's usually a maximum purchase price that you can uh, go to as a first-time buyer to get a complete concession, that is pay zero stamp duty, or to get um, uh, a reduction. Um, so often they're a sliding scale, aren't they? They are. And look, there's uh, ACT um, has is phasing out stamp duty and New South Wales is talking about it. But when they do that, they replace it with another type of property tax. And so land tax is something that you may hear about. Land tax typically is paid by investors when they own um, property that's worth more than a threshold. The unimproved land, that's another term, unimproved land. Uh, that is basically what the plot of dirt would be worth without a house on it or a building on it. Um and, and that's different state by state too because it's not necessarily the market value, is it? Unimproved land no. is actually the, uh, the assessed uh, or what, what rates are assessed on. Uh, so when you pay your council rates, they use the unimproved land value to calculate that. Um, the the uh, value of general in each state will go around. Uh, some years they do it every year. Other years they might skip a year and not do it, um, particularly if prices haven't gone up, they'll... they'll um, uh, so or rapidly go out. They, yeah, yeah, they, don't, they, yeah they, they do want people to pay more, um, <laughs> more tax and more rates. So, so uh, they, they sometimes will skip a year. But um, that unimproved land value is not the market value. It's not what you would pay if you just bought that piece of land. Um, we actually find there's about a 40% differential between mm. unimproved land value in Brisbane and market value. So what someone would pay for a vacant piece of piece of land and we see that reasonably consistently but again it's you know dependent on the suburb and the elevation and, and, and other factors as well exactly right and you know interesting they do calculate your rates on unimproved land so basically if everything in the suburb goes up it doesn't matter it doesn't mean you're going to be paying more rates it's all a proportion um, of your unimproved land versus everybody else's unimproved land but if you're paying land tax it will mean you pay more um, yes. And so typically, as I said before, land tax is something that investors have had to pay um, and it's a state-based tax as well. But we will potentially see that come into play that owner-occupiers will have to pay a small amount of land tax every year, like a, like a state rate, if you like, um, if stamp duty is abolished. So mm. that's just something to be aware of. There are all these different taxes. The government loves tax property. <laughs> that's just the way yeah. it is in this country. And, and if that change happens, Veronica, it, it removes a barrier to entry for people um, to either you know come into the market for the first time or to upgrade their property. And and w- but what it is doing is shifting from a purchasing tax to an ownership tax. So it won't disappear completely. You know, rather than paying one off, you'll you'll actually pay over the period of ownership. Um, so there's some pros and cons to that, and people n- need to understand that. Um, particularly in the ACT, as you say, I think you're investigating in New South Wales. There hasn't been um, any sort of uh, rumblings around that in Queensland that I'm aware of. Um, but, you know, these things are always under review. 
Yes, they are. Now, purchasing costs, you might have heard the term purchasing costs, and these are the additional costs on top of the purchase price of a property. So people often think, okay, I just got to save up 10% or 20%. It's like, but... There's more to think about. So these yeah. are things that include the stamp duty, uh, building inspections, legal fees, mortgage fees, uh, strata report fees, those sorts of uh, fees that are additional to the actual purchase of the property. And obviously, if you're going to use a buyer's agent, buyer's agent fees. Yep, and, and you have to set. You have to have this money in addition to your deposit. So it's not something that you can sort of say, "All right, well, my purchasing price is this, and this is how much cash I've got." I'll pay my purchasing costs out of that cash. Uh, if you dip under your 20%, then you're going to LMI territory. We talked about that uh, just a moment ago. So th- these are these are costs that you need to understand, have a great spreadsheet. Um, it, it's something that, that uh, you can put together really quite quickly to understand your purchasing costs um, and, and have that available to pay often before the settlement of the property. So some of these, these costs mm. actually come into play before you even purchase the property and certainly before you settle it. Yeah. And when you have settled it, well, we've got some of these terms back to front, I think, but um, offset account. Well, this is when you're talking to your broker. So these are the sorts of things you want to be talking to your broker about or you might hear your broker talk about. Um, I I personally, for my home loan, um, on the variable component, I have an offset account. And Mm -hmm. really what it is, is it's a normal transaction account. It's linked to your mortgage account and you can make withdrawals and deposits and so forth like any other account. But the difference is all of the cash that is sitting in that offset account offsets the interest. So it's almost like like the loan balance is reduced by the amount that is sitting in the offset account and you only pay interest on that lower amount. So it's actually a way of saving interest, but your money isn't locked up. So another term um, which we haven't said here is redraw. So redraw is if you pay more than you're required to um, on your home loan and you're ahead of your minimum repayments um, and you want to put a pool in or, or improve the kitchen or take some money out for some reason, you can redraw against loan in some loan products, but it's a, you know, it's a bit of a process. There's usually money involved and so forth. So an offset account is a more convenient way of having an ability to put money in to reduce your interest, but you can take it out like any other transaction account. A really, really good one to talk to a broker about if you have um, extra money that comes in that you can sit in that offset account, but you'll use it in the future and you know that you're going to use that money in the future. Great place to store your buffer and Mm. uh, you need buffers. But um, mortgage brokers, this is why we always say talk to a mortgage broker who's like a borrowing strategist who really gets not just about finding you the cheapest rate. This is all Mm -hmm. about understanding how you can work a mortgage um, for the long term as well. So that's a really important um, thing. And then that really leads into loan structure. That's something else you might hear. What the hell is loan structure? It's uh, it's almost like um, you know when you when you're thinking about what property you're going to buy, you really think through um, you know what do I want? Do I want an apartment or a house? Do I want where do I want it? You know all these sorts of questions in the early stages are going through your mind. Loan structure is about sitting down with a professional who can look at your goals and your needs as an individual. And it takes into account, you know, the loan type. Is it going to be fixed or variable, the, the asset ownership structure? So is the loan going to be in one name, two names? Is it going to be, what's the borrowing entity going to be? And borrowing entity is the name that is going to own the property. And this is something that can't be changed after a property is purchased. 
um, it, 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 and it also um, how funds or equity will be used. So as you build up equity in the property, what are you going to do with that? Are you, are you going to perhaps use that to leverage into another property or um, will, will you keep your borrowing um, at the maximum for investment property but get your home loan down? So this loan structuring um, is so, so important and so unique to you that even having a, a conversation with, you know, workmates or mum and dad or other people that have purchased, um, it, it's not the way to find out how to structure a loan for you because their goals, their needs, their their financial situation, their, the way money comes into their household is, is going to be quite different. It's, it's a very, very important conversation to have because it's not an easy one to change and certainly ownership of the property is almost impossible to change unless you pay stamp duty again. Yeah, ouch. And the other thing too is if ever the property is going to become a an investment in the future, yes. then um, loan structure, offset account, all those things are really important to set up correctly at the outset so that gives you maximum flexibility down the track. And, yeah, a great mortgage broker can actually help you set this stuff up and, and explain it to you and, under, and so that you understand. Mm. But, Megan, you also used a word there, leverage. That's a yes. term. So leverage basically means if you think about it's it's borrowing. Basically, in context of property, leverage means borrowing. And what it means is that it makes things work harder. So if you think of a lever, a lever literally is something that helps you move something else, something that's heavy, and get more movement out of it, right? And so with leverage, with when you're borrowing money, it means that you've got more money working for you in the property market. So that's sort of fundamentally where what leverage means, borrowing. Yeah. Borrowing, yes. Borrowing. It's using it's using the small amount of money that you've saved to be able to borrow more money to get something that's bigger than you could have just bought with your small pool of money. Exactly. Capital growth, Veronica. Uh, yes, these are terms your accountant might use. We yep. certainly use them and we mentioned it earlier when it came around equity. In simple terms, this is the amount that your property increases in value since you buy it. Very, very important. So it's a rate, usually expressed as a percentage, um, but it also can be expressed as a dollar value. And it's something that we really, really draw attention to because a lot of people think if it goes up in value that you've done really well. But the, understanding the percentage versus what Compared to could, what? Yeah. <laughs> compared to what else you perhaps could have bought. Very important. <laughs> And, and capital growth is is something that, um, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but capital growth is something that happens uh, as a result of the market, not necessarily as a result of something that you do. Um, you Other can than you you're can buying manuf- the right asset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can manufacture <laughs> growth by, by doing things, um, mm. but, but it is a market force. So actually purchasing the right asset at the start to make sure that the growth that you experience, and, and you know, one of the most incredible things about the property market is this compounding nature of mm. capital growth. So if you get 1% growth on on $500,000 in the first year, um, but you get 10% in the second year, you haven't got 11% growth. You've actually got, you know, you've got the 10% on top of the five. 500,000 plus 1% and then the mm. next and so forth. So you're actually, and, and the beauty of, of property is that it compounds over time um, and, and that's where a lot of people see uh, that that capital growth element come into play for them um, as opposed yeah. to, you know, gold or, 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 or another asset class um, that you might invest in. And back to that leverage thing, because you can borrow more money, therefore you've got more money in the market um, growing as opposed to just a small amount of deposit mm. that you've saved. 
But it's funny, you know, with prices rising, a lot of people say, oh, my God, it's not possible. It can't keep going up. can't keep going up because, you know, how can it be? And in some of the suburbs that, that we buy in in Sydney, you know, how can it be that a first-home buyer is spending $3 or $4 million for a house? Or even if it's $1 million, how can a first-home buyer possibly spend a million dollars on a house? And yeah. it's like in an established area where people are upgrading and those upgraders are buying a house for a million dollars, they're not borrowing a million dollars they're not even borrowing 800,000 you know they've they've sold something maybe worth 600 and they're borrowing the difference and that's mm. where the capital growth is so important because and the equity and the leverage all these words is why that's so important because once you're in the market and you've got a property that's growing in value then your next step what well, seems like oh my god how could anyone afford a million dollars well you're not borrowing a million dollars you're borrowing the difference and that's why it's so important to focus on capital growth mm. and, and the drivers of, of capital growth yep yeah. Capital gains is, is something that an, an, an accountant will talk about when you go to sell the property, basically. Mm. And the accountant will work out what your capital gain is. And that is the price that you sell the property for minus the capital growth figure or and the costs associated with purchasing, borrowing, renovating and selling the property. So, the capital gain is the bit that you pay tax on unless it is your principal place of residence. You don't pay capital gains tax on, on that. We're going to go into capital gains tax in a minute. Um, but it, it is capital gain is the difference between kind of what you paid and your costs and what you sell for. Yep. So it's what you're left with in the bank on settlement day. That's your capital gain. Uh, and that's what you have to pay yep, tax yep, on. If and that's it's not what you pay tax on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not your principal place of residence. And moving on to that, capital gains tax, otherwise known as CGT. And uh, so if a property is your principal place of residence, that is you live in it and have always mm -hmm. lived in it since the purchase, or if you've moved out for a period of time and you haven't bought something else you're within six years, there's, there's certain, certain, certain rules, um, a rules lot of there, rules, a lot yeah, of rules. Talk and to your so, accountant about that one. Absolutely. Then you will not have to pay tax on the capital gain when you sell it. So if, however, your property is an investment property or has been an investment property for a period of time and you haven't had that exemption period, then you will need to pay some tax. Now, it is complicated, so keep all the records from purchase onwards and engage a good accountant. Mm. I, I think too, and I don't want to go into it here because it's a really complex um, sort of scenario to work through, if you've been claiming any sort of work from home um, or home office Mm -hmm. uh, claims through the Australian Taxation Office that when you do your tax at the end of the year and you say, you know, one of my rooms is my home office, that can that can lead to an assessment oh, of you part in the bum. of yes. your home to be subject to capital gains tax, even if it was your principal place of residence. Big, big, important conversation to have with your accountant. Yeah, and to, to uh, I'm not claiming my office on my I tax. don't either. Because no. I don't want to. I don't want to be stung with the bill <laughs> at the end, of the end of it all. So, but that's a conversation that I had with my accountant, and that's following that advice. Yep. We absolutely, it's good to pick that up. Now, yep. the capital gains tax concession. So, okay, so you've got an investment property, or, or it's been investment for part of the time that you've owned it. You sell it. You've got a certain amount of money that's been your capital gains. You have to pay tax, but there's a concession. So, property investors can, which means you don't actually pay a tax on the whole amount. So. Yep. Currently in Australia, and this, and I say currently because this can change, it's been mm -hmm. talked about changing, property investors currently get a 50% capital gains tax discount, so CGT discount. And this means that after your accountant has calculated the CGT, you only have to pay tax on half of that figure. Now, 
be aware. So let's, that- let's use an example, Veronica. Um, so if you had a hundred thousand dollar capital gain uh, as an investor, so that's the difference between what you paid for the property uh, plus your costs, and then what you sold it for. You've got a hundred thousand dollars sitting there. Um, you'll only pay tax on fifty percent of that, and at your marginal tax rate. Mm. So if you're at forty, what is the top? tax rate now it's 40, 40 no it's gone down from 47, 47 something right 40, there. so 43. You, it's close to 20 it, maximum your pay is very close to twenty five thousand dollars if you made a hundred thousand dollar gain negative gearing that's another thing that you'll hear you know you probably hear banded around a bit particularly mm. if you are looking at investment and particularly if you've been mm. hanging around spruikers <laughs> yes that's how you can afford to buy a an investment property on for, for just the a price cup of coffee a, cup of a day coffee. apparently <laughs> yeah. don't not be one, fooled don't no <laughs> it's not that suggestion at all all right so it's it's a tax negative gearing is a tax concession that allows an investor to get a tax deduction for losses okay negative gearing does not apply if you're actually making if you're earning, if the income from the rent is more than your costs, you're positively geared rather than negatively geared. Mm. So say you're a property investor who's out of pocket, maybe $1,000 a month because the rent doesn't cover your interest on your mortgage after accounting for depreciation and costs, then you can claim a $12,000 loss or or negatively geared $12,000 against your tax. So what that will do is reduce your taxable income by whatever that amount of the loss is. Yeah. And, of course, it's less uh, less tempting for buyers now, for investors now, because interest rates are so low. So when interest rates are mm. high, it's a real big thing. And mm. when interest rates are low, it's not such a big thing because, of course, your costs are lower. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah your holding costs are a lot lower when the interest rates are low. And, and certainly... Um, uh, if you if you have put a twenty percent deposit in and its interest rates are, are quite favourable at the moment, um, you, you may actually find that you're not negatively geared on mm. the investment property uh, because rents. Now I'm talking from a, business, a Brisbane perspective here, but rents have been experienced quite some reasonable growth in houses, not not necessarily apartments, but house rents have been um, improving in the last six months, which is 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 quite a surprise. But that can turn around as well if there's more supply comes on the market, then the rents might drop again yes and that does happen let's face it it's all about (laughs) supply and demand and the rental market is quite volatile too you know because it sort of moves up and down yes quite yeah yeah quite depending on demand and supply Mm. as always now here's some terms that you might hear that relate to quick we just forgot got to add one in depreciation oh Good, yeah. Good yeah. So, and, and it's so tied- many terms. How do we fit them all in, Veronica? And this isn't even all of them, but we will have a download available uh, with, a, with a glossary of terms. So there'll be things that we haven't actually talked about here. These are just the main ones. The uh, depreciation is something that... The, the build, okay, so it's part of negative gearing because when you buy a property that is, you know, less than, I can't remember how many years old now, but if brand new in particular, you get lots of depreciation, right? Because basically the minute a building is built and all the fixtures and fittings go in, like the stoves and the, you know, what are the dishwashers and dryers and stuff like that, carpet, blinds, um, those things start to depreciate. So they're worth less tomorrow than they are today. And the building is the same, worth less tomorrow than it is today. And so an accountant will work, uh, you can get a depreciation schedule on these properties and actually work out how much you can deduct from your taxable income because of the decline in value of these these parts of the the property, right? Mm. And you'll often hear that the 
the building depreciates, but the land is what goes up in value. It's one of the reasons why people favour houses. So this is all quite complicated and we're not going into that right now. But that's really fundamentally what depreciation is, is the fact that these things date and with wear and tear, you couldn't sell the dishwasher tomorrow for what you paid for it today. Yeah. And so that that amount of money is, is scheduled, is actually it's, just, it's um, prescribed as to the exact amount that it depreciates over time. But as an investor, you can you can claim that depreciation. Um, now, you can only depreciate the fixtures and fittings, though, if it's brand new. So if you renovate and put those things in, you can depreciate. Or if you buy a brand new apartment, you can claim it. But this is one of the reasons why buying brand new apartments is so risky is because if you go in thinking, yay, it's going to cost me less because I can depreciate, and then you need to sell it in a year or two, and those those fixtures and fittings still have depreciate years to depreciate but the next owner can't actually um, claim those uh that depreciation so there's there's as i said before it's very complicated you need to talk to an accountant but it's one of the big risks in in going after depreciation as a decision making factor to buy a property because it's a it's a one-hit wonder really yeah, and it's a limited. It's got a limited outcome, and and generally speaking, uh, something that depreciates at a higher level isn't going to appreciate um, from a capital gains perspective. So, uh, you know, those two things often don't go hand in hand. Really important in asset selection for depreciation not to be a driving factor in your decision making. Absolutely. When we started this episode, we underestimated how much ground we'd be covering. And so we've actually cut the episode into two parts and we'll be back with more terminology you need to know. We'll be covering a lot of real estate jargon around buying strategies, auctions and making offers, as well as some of the more ridiculous things that agents say next week. In this episode, we've covered a very small part of our 10-step online course for first-time buyers. If you would like to learn more about the process and how to buy without making a mistake, then head over to our website, www.homebuyeracademy.com.au. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you like what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. Five stars would be wonderful. It will help others find us as well. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with some more priceless stuff.